Welcome to Healthy by Choice, a broadcast designed to bring powerful healing into your life today. Gaining and maintaining optimum health is possible at any age. That's what thousands are learning at CHIP, the complete health improvement program offered across the country and around the world. You can learn more at chiphealth.com. But now, get ready to enjoy some proven results and priceless benefits. I'm your Healthy by Choice host, Charles Mills. Do you like mysteries? Well, we've got one for you today. Consider this. We now know more about the human brain than ever before. We've got powerful medicines that can change the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we react to life. Peace and tranquility is as close as your medicine cabinet, and it's all legal. So here's the mystery. The number of adults and children disabled by mental illness has skyrocketed over the last 50 years or so, and there's no end in sight. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. What's going on? Our guest today has written a book on this very subject, and he's here to talk about what he labels as the anatomy of an epidemic. Robert Whitaker has won numerous awards as a journalist covering medicine and science. He co-wrote a series on psychiatric research for the Boston Globe and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. His book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, won the 2010 Investigative Reporters and Editors Book Award for Best Investigative Journalism. Robert Whitaker, welcome to Healthy by Choice. Thank you for having me here. Bob, let's begin with uh, our discussion today with an obvious question. The people of this nation and this world are plainly nuts, and we're getting worse. How did we get here? <laughs> well, that's a big question. <laughs> the burden of mental illness is going up dramatically in yes, the United States, yes. and there's a lot of different measures by that. More people depressed, uh, more people disabled, that sort of thing. And something like 20% of our kids are ending up diagnosed by the time they're 18 and and have exposure to psychiatric drugs. So something's going on. Because we look at the first 50 years of the last uh, century, and there were two world wars in there. Uh, there, there was all kinds of uh, civil rights problems, but we didn't have the problem. Or did we have the problem, and we just didn't recognize it? What's your take on that? Well, in the first half of the 20th century, I mean, we did have mental hospitals that were, you know, growing with our number of patients. Yeah. But even at the highest moment, you, you, you will see about 550,000 people after World War II. Mm-hmm. This is in 1955, actually, in the state and county mental hospitals. So those are all the mental hospitals. And we had a population of about 165 million, so that's about one in every 500 people at that time. Mm-hmm. But even that is misleading because about 200,000 of those people were, in fact, elderly people with in-stage Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So there were about 350,000 people said to be disabled by mental illness in in 1955. Well, today we have about 4.8 million adults on disability. So there's always been this sense that there's been a small segment of population that, you know, really does have trouble with their minds in ways that lead them to become dysfunctional in various ways, whether it be depression or psychotic episodes, that sort of thing. But for some reason in this last... 50 years, which is the era of increasing use of psychiatric medications, rather than seeing that problem abate and uh, we have a way to help people become more functional, function okay, the problem is just sky, you know, just soaring. Because I guess what I'm after here is that there has always been things to make us sad. There's always been things to make us depressed. There's always been things to make us full of anxiety. 
but the numbers of people who are who have stopped functioning normally in this world of anxiety and stress and depression is skyrocketing. Am I right here? Yeah, you're really right on the, the point here. So if you look at who was in mental hospitals in the first half of the 20th century, it was really psychotic people, yeah. by and large, yeah. and those with a diagnosis. There was something only like 50,000 people hospitalized for depression in 1955. Mm. So you're right, anxiety, depression, worry, stress, those things have always been with us, and they're part of you know, what we humans deal with. It's affective disorders, it's anxiety, mm. it's depression and bipolar disorder that is really causing the dramatic increase in the number of people on disability. It's not psychotic disorders. So we have to ask ourselves is, why did people with suffering some degree of uh, depression or anxiety, um, why did they used to be able to hold jobs? And why did those disorders tend to run episodic courses? In other words, a person would be depressed for a period of time, the depression would lift, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's the big question. Why, why all of a sudden that these, these things that have always been part of life, why are they becoming so much more disabling? Why are they becoming so much more of a burden in our society? And, of course, that is the thought that you had in your mind when you began working on Anatomy of an Epidemic, the book. We're talking with Robert Whitaker here, the author of that book. Okay, Robert, you have, you have laid a foundation here. We've always lived in a stressful time. We've always had reasons to be depressed, and there are people who have been psychotic all along. But 50 years ago, there was a sea change. Something began to grow in our minds. What is that that began to grow as far as your research has found for us? Well, here's the irony. Our our belief system goes like this in our society, is that Thorazine arrives in asylum medicine in 1955, and this kicks off a psychopharmacological revolution, this great advance in care. Now, generally, when you get a great advance in care, the burden of that disease it treats becomes less. Yes. Anyway, we get antipsychotics, we get antidepressants, we get anti-anxiety agents. And in the names of those words, it sounds like they're antibiotics, that they're fixing something <laughs> wrong in the brain. Yeah. And, of course, at some point we were told that they fix chemical imbalances. Mm-hmm. Well, what you find is that if you really dig into the science, it's well, first of all, since the arrival of Thorazine, the, the level of disability has gone up and up and up, mm-hmm. and you want to ask out, ask why. Then you start looking at, well, what did the course of depression used to run before you used antidepressants? And you find that, that it was an episodic disorder. Even within people hospitalized, they'd recover from the episode, and then they might go three, four years, or maybe even never have another episode before they had another real bout of depression. Now it runs, a, in the antidepressant era, it runs a much more chronic course. Yes, yes. So what you find is this in the bottom line. You find that the story that these drugs fix chemical imbalances isn't true. What you find, in fact, is that the biology of mental disorders basically remains unknown, that these drugs perturb chemicals in the brain. The brain tries to compensate for that perturbation. So you actually end up with a changed brain that is now operating in an abnormal manner as Mm -hmm. opposed to a normalizing manner. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the research literature over the long term, which is what I was looking about, I was looking about how well are people functioning over the long term. What you find is that with the use of these medications, on the whole, they increase the chronicity of the disorder. In other words, people are more likely to be continually depressed, say. And over the long term, they clearly reduce employment rates for various reasons. Now, this doesn't mean everybody is doing poorly on the medications, but in the aggregate, they have this long-term effect. They increase the risk of disability, 
and they um, increase the risk that someone will become sort of chronically ill. And you see this with depression. You see it with bipolar disorder. You see it with anxiety. And believe it or not, you actually even see it with the psychotic disorders. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, so a person is having a problem, a depression, anxiety, whatever the problem may be, even psychotic disorders, goes to the doctor. It used to be the doctor would just basically make them safe and secure and, and wait it out, apparently is what, what I hear you saying, that it eventually, most of the time, went away. Now they're giving drugs for a chemical imbalance, which causes an even greater chemical imbalance in the brain. You bring this out in, in your book. The people who are under these things, who are taking these medicines on an ongoing basis— do they feel better, yet they can't function, or is the fact that they can't function is because they still feel bad? Well, that's a good question. And, and again, I want to emphasize we're talking about outcomes in the aggregate. I mean, uh-huh. there's some people that do fine on these medications. Yeah. Let's just focus on depression for, for an example. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see when people go on antidepressants, there's some, often is there's some initial relief. Their depressive symptoms go down. But by the end of the year, you often find that people have sunk back into a depressed state. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's very likely to become almost a sort of a chronic state where they have at least a low-level depression all the time. So what you see there in the, in the research literature is something that used to be much more episodic, where people yes. would recover yes. to what's called dysthymia, an absence of depression, to where it just runs a much more chronic course. So that's one problem. The symptoms themselves are, spo- are more likely to remain persistent. Then the other thing is, after sort of an initial period of recovery, we're talking about long-term, mm-hmm. then the other thing that has happened is you'll see new problems crop up. So, again, let's say with SSRIs. Well, there's a, a real risk that that person will have a manic episode on an SSRI and they'll convert to bipolar. Mm-hmm. Once they convert to bipolar, they're often given like a, a, a polypharmacy, several drugs, including an antipsychotic, and that's a real pathway to uh, disability mm-hmm. once you're on sort of three, four drugs. Mm-hmm. So you'll see that. And then the other thing is you'll see, say, for example, again, with a lot of these drugs, you'll see some minor, or not even sometimes minor, but you'll see some cognitive decline. People aren't quite as acutely aware of their environment. And you will see sometimes some emotional demotivation as well with some of these medications. So you add them all up, more persistent symptomatology, some cognitive decline, sometimes some physical problems, some decrease of motivation, and it becomes a path to disability for for many, many people. Now, we're skirting around this statement, and I want to say it now and make sure we're on the right track. Are you telling us that your research, Robert Whitaker, has shown that the very medicines that are supposed to cure us are actually creating the problem that they're supposed to cure down the road? Am I right? Yeah, and I want to emphasize one thing. It's not my research. It's my study of the research literature. This is what's quite remarkable, is that you actually find within the scientific literature done by mainstream, you know, NIMH-funded studies and all, this paradox appears. It first sort of shows up in the 1970s, where you have, say, people doing longer-term studies of schizophrenia, and they notice that, in fact, the medicated patients have higher relapse rates over the period of, say, one, two, and three years. They wonder, what's going on? And then they come up with this biological explanation for why that is so. And, and basically, as it's, the brain tries to compensate for the presence of the drug, and ironically, that means the drug drives the brain in the exact opposite direction you're trying to do it, mm-hmm. trying to initially do so. Mm-hmm. And it shows up with antidepressants as well. You see doctors in the early 1970s as they're using antidepressants, they go, wow, my patients are getting better faster. 
but it seems like they're relapsing more quickly. And then eventually you get some doctors, you know, this is away from the public eye saying like, are we increasing the biological vulnerability to depression with antidepressants? Mm -hmm. That shows up in 1994, and you'll see some people saying, well, you know, we really need to look at this. And just, I think it was two years ago, a very well-known mood researcher sort of put together the evidence for why antidepressants are depressogenic over the long term. But yes, that's what I'm saying. And I know this is stunning, but that A, the drugs actually induce the very biological change or chemical imbalance that you're supposedly correcting in the first place. And B, there's a lot of, you know, government-funded studies that have shown this paradoxical long-term effect. I'd like to take a moment to invite you to the CHIP website, chiphealth.com. It's a confusing world out there. Lots of information comes at you from so many different directions. We advocate gaining and maintaining optimum health through lifestyle changes. Changes in what you eat, how you exercise, even how you think and reason. Does it work? Over 50,000 graduates say yes. CHIP is a program that works because it's based on the science of health. Science that's proven and amazingly effective. Stop by chiphealth.com to learn more. Changes come when you make health a habit. That's chiphealth.com. Welcome back to the program. I'm your host, Charles Mills. We're here with Robert Whitaker. He is a journalist and award-winning journalist, as a matter of fact, covering medicine and science. He co-wrote a series on psychiatric research for the Boston Globe. And this man was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. He has a book out now, Anatomy of an Epidemic, and he has made a startling revelation. Actually, he didn't make it. He'll be the first to say that. He has brought to light something that has been said and ignored, basically, for many years. And that is that the very drugs we're using to mitigate our psychotic problems are causing psychotic problems. And that is as an eye-opener. Bob, in your book on part three, you have a chapter called Suffer the Children. And I I used to be a school teacher, and I had a student that uh, was a real breakup in class. I mean, he was always disrupting, and his parents were all worried about him. And he went and saw a doctor, and the doctor gave him this thing called Ritalin. And it changed him. He became a quiet, passive, nice, smiling guy. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. But what I didn't see is what you have discovered in your research. Tell us about what happens to the children in your book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, in your chapter, Suffer the Children. Yeah, so the research we've been talking about is, you know, looking at outcomes in adults over the long term. Yes. And now we're going to switch to children, and that the adult literature sort of serves as a foil for thinking about this. And think about this. The children, of course, have developing brains. Yes. And um, they're not deciding on their own to take these medications. It's basically being told, they're being told to take them. Mm-hmm. So we really want to see that there's good long-term evidence that we're helping these kids grow up and thrive. Now, how about the evidence for Ritalin, which if, I think there's something like more than 10% of our children now on ADHD My. drugs. What you find is this, this drug will, as you saw with the child in your class, it will change that child's behavior, mm-hmm. often become quieter, less socially engaged, maybe better able to focus on certain types of tasks like arithmetic, that sort of thing. Yes. But when they have done studies to look at how it affects the children long term, does it improve does it lead to a better long term academic performance? 
or better social sort of outcomes long term. They've never been able to find that to be true. And in fact, the, the one NIMH-funded study on this was called the MTA Multimodal Study. And what they found is that after the 14 months, the medicated kids were doing slightly better. But between year two and three, being on medication, they found, was a marker of deterioration, not of benefit, such that by the end of the third year, if anything, the kids on the medications compared to those off were getting worse. And at the end of six years, the kids on medication had higher delinquency rates and higher rates of functional impairment. And so, as one investigator said, there was no benefit on any domain of functioning, none. And we should make that clear to parents. Now, the problem is, once you understand this, that there's nothing on the benefit side long term, then you have to now tally up the risks. Well, one of the risks of being on stimulants is, if, is in fact, you'll have a psychotic episode and once that happens, you're going to get diagnosed with either bipolar disorder or perhaps even a schizoaffective or schizophrenia disorder. So what you have is this risk you're going to move from where the kid is sort of a fidgety kid in classroom and not, they're perhaps not thriving in the classroom to next thing you know, he's got a diagnosis for a lifelong mental disorder. And that seems to be happening with about 10% of kids who are medicated for ADHD. And then there's some other problems with these medications as well. But that's an example of, of how we have a system of care where we don't have evidence that we're helping that child long-term, right, on mm -hmm. any domain of functioning, academic achievement. Mm -hmm. And then we have all these risks that the kid, in fact, now we have a risk of creating a permanent mental patient, so to speak. And when you look at this and you see what's happening to our children, so many of them getting diagnosed and labeled, and as this has happened, you know, the mental health of our children has just worsened dramatically. In other words, as we've been diagnosing them left and right. right. In some colleges today, something like 25% of entering freshmen enter with a diagnosis and a drug. And something like more than 50% will see psychiatric services during their four years. So it shows how we're, we're sort of teaching our young children to think of themselves as, as basically ill uh, you know, not right, not normal, not able to cope with life stresses. And the real tragedy is you see a, a significant percentage basically being made into career mental patients, and it just breaks your heart. Now, Bob, listening to you say this just makes me more upset and more upset here because 50 years ago, my dad or my grandfather faced problems. There were wars going on. There was, there was love affairs and breaking hearts, and there was stress in the job. And these people won wars. These people loved their country. These people didn't kill people in theaters, not in the numbers we're looking at today here. Why is it that we cannot deal with life that we could before? Is it that we are just giving up, that we don't want to do the hard work? What's your take on this? How do we turn this around? Well, that's a huge question and such an important question for our society. Um, you know, and I think it's multifactorial. Uh, um, you know, my, so my dad was fought in World War II, yes. saw a lot of combat. Um, he was of that generation, born in 1920, so he was raised during the Depression, had no money whatsoever. Right. You know, I think they had a philosophy of life at that time, which was the expectation was that life is tough. Mm. Life has lots of setbacks, but that human beings were resilient at the same time. 
and they could overcome these difficulties or battle these difficulties. So there was a context of expectation that life is tough, life has its setbacks, but it's amazing how resilient human beings can be, and especially within a context of a supportive family. The the capacity of that family unit to survive setbacks is really rather remarkable. And then we sort of embraced a new philosophy of being, and and a lot of this does come from the pharmaceutical industry and this whole sort of psychiatrizing of human beings of our society, and there's that obvious commercial uh, enterprise going on here. But I can even tell you when the NIMH started to run educational programs to rethink this. So in 1987, they mounted something called the DART campaign. And they had, they had surveyed people before this and asked them about depression. Would you go get treatment? And someone like 87% said depression will pass. Mm. And so we just need to learn to, to live with it and seek out friends and it'll pass. We won't go get drugs. So our government said, no, that's wrong. And they were being funded by the drug companies, this, this <laughs> educational campaign. Imagine that. You need to learn that it's a chemical imbalance, that it won't pass without treatment, it can be fatal without treatment, and it's really a chronic disorder, and sort of you need these drugs for life. Mm-hmm. And so within that educational campaign, our philosophy of being was being recast. In other words, can we handle depression? We used to think we could. We could get through it. We were being told, no, you can't, not without a professional, and you sort of have this abnormal brain, and so it's, it's chronic, and you're, you're defective. And think about the difference in philosophy of being. The first one says, not only are you resilient, when you have these setbacks, maybe you need to make some changes in your life to cope with, say, the depressive episode, whatever, for whatever reason. If there's a sense of self-responsibility in the old way, the new one, you're just a victim right? You have something wrong with your brain chemistry, and you really can't do anything other than take this drug. This modern story about how these drugs fix chemical imbalances, they make us think of ourselves as really not agents of self-responsibility. If we have these things, these things just happen to us. Uh, We really can't do anything other than take the pill. It really is a vision of sort of a weakness in ourselves and a weakness in our society, and it, it produces great profits. I mean, yes. in 1987, we spent about $800 million on psychiatric drugs in this country. In 2007, we spent about $40 billion. Oh, oh. So that's a 50-fold increase. So it's a great story for commerce, but it's a really lousy story for society. And last thing on this, you know, after I wrote Anatomy of an Epidemic, I began getting a lot of invitations to speak in, in European countries. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, they're all seeing the same thing. Really? As they adopt widespread use of SSRIs, what do they see? They see the burden of depression go up. They see the number of people on disability due to depression and bipolar disorder go way up. And then when they start medicating their kids, they see more problems in their kids growing up, more mental problems. And there was just a study that looked at Quebec that said, as you (laughs) diagnose more kids... What happens to that society? They found out all the, all the sort of uh, scales measuring sort of health and outcomes of those kids, they go down over the long yes. term. Yes. Anyway, I, I'm sort of rambling a bit here. But my point here is that this commercial enterprise of diagnosing more and more people with psychiatric problems and giving them medications, it's given us a new philosophy of being that isn't, it isn't a helpful one. You know, Bob, I'm going to add a couple layers here to what you just said. This is something that I've been thinking 
for a number of years now that we are suffering what I call the Mr. Rogers effect, where we're okay just the way we are. We are loved just the way. We don't have to be anything but just the way we are. And heaven forbid that we change anything about ourselves. If along comes a depression, we don't want to change who we are. We don't want to change the way we work or think. We want the world to change for us. And so since we are just fine the way we are, we demand other people to change. And if they don't, we go crazy. And there you go. Another thing, the second layer is this. We've also seen in the last 50 years, right along with this, a huge decline in the health of this country, the physical health of this country. The chronic diseases come up. What has made that take place? And we know from the Complete Health Improvement Program studies that it is all about diet and it's all about lack of exercise and it's all about staring at a computer screen all day. We have diminished our capacity to think To be healthy, both physical and mental, we are on a downward spiral. What do you think we should do? What's your suggestion for us? You've written the book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. How do we reform this? Well, two quick things. (laughs) One, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, mental health and physical health are completely linked. Yes. I mean, obviously, one of the ways to good mental health is, you know, good sleep, good diet, have meaning in life, exercise, all those things. Right. So, I mean, one of the things is we need to realize that and somehow uh, start trying to really have healthier diets, healthier food, whole foods, not processed foods, right. get exercise, right. that sort of thing. Right. The other thing, and, you know, this starts with kids. They should be out in the playground, you know, running around, pushing each other and all that good <laughs> stuff, actually. The other thing is, what does it mean to raise raise a child? If you go back to, like, the Greeks, and I think actually with the philosophy that was in place in the, say, you know, my dad's generation, part of what you were supposed to raise was a good citizen. Mm-hmm. In other words, someone who understood they, they were part of this larger body politic. And they, they, remember JFK, ask not what your country yes, can do for you, yes. but what you can do for your country. So there was this sense of responsibility to grow up and and organize your behavior in a way that improved society, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Now, I really do believe in the modern time, as sort of what you were referring to, is it's sort of a narcissistic view, like, how does your kid get ahead? (laughs) And, And we, you know, your kid's always so special, and that sort of thing. That's a very different sense of what it means to raise a, a, a kid, you know, Oh, I want my kid just to get in the best school and to make the most money. That's very different than raising a child who you think is going to be a good citizen. Mm-hmm. And I think so we've got that going on as well. And, and, you know, everything you're talking about is all the markers of a, of a, of a prosperous society, physical health, mental health, uh, educational achievement, intellectual achievement as we compare ourselves to other societies, mm-hmm. they're all going down. So you, you can see the... I think the crisis that is really developing. Mm, my. Robert Whitaker is our guest today. He has written the book Anatomy of an Epidemic, and I recommend this book strongly to you, listener. Um, Bob, any place we can get a hold of this book? How do we go and find this book on the Internet? Well, it's definitely at all your online bookstores, Amazon, that sort of thing. And, uh-huh. and, and there's a number of bookstores that still have it on their shelves because okay. it's sort of continued to sell. But obviously the easiest way is just to go onto Amazon or some um, online book ordering and get it that way. All right. Anatomy of an Epidemic is the name of the book by Robert Whitaker. 
Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate your words of wisdom. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And listener, as well as that website at Amazon for the book, you can also check out uh, chiphealth.com. That is the website for the Complete Health Improvement Program. You can see if a program's coming near you. Also, lots of research and information on all health topics. That's at chiphealth.com. Until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Robert Whitaker inviting you to be healthy by choice. Goodbye, everyone. If you'd like more information about Healthy by Choice, call Three Angels Broadcasting Network at 618-627-4651. You can also email us through our website at 3abn.org. 3ABN.org.